0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: A reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. this is a desolate place, and the hours now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5000 men this is the word of the lord Thank you very much.
0: Good morning once again. It's a great delight for me to be here with you. It's been a long time since I preached in a theater. I was actually thinking about when the last time was. It was in Poland in 1997. I was in a city called Ostruda, and we held like a uh, sort of a conference or revival meeting. And uh, I, along with the youth group that I was leading at the time, so uh, got to speak, uh, hold a weekend rally in a theater like this so sitting here in the front row brought back so many memories of what that was like to worship god and to serve god with joy and and humility so once again it's a great delight for me to be here uh i my day job is i work at vanderbilt uh as a professor and my weekend job is not job but calling is to serve as the uh, scholar in residence at christ press so i usually teach i Sunday school classes every week and every six or seven times a year I get to preach. So this is one such Sunday. So don't hold that against the, the crowd here. So, um, so today's uh, text, which was read so uh, dramatically and, and efficaciously, is a story that is familiar to many of us precisely because any gospel book you pick up to read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you're going to read about this story. You're going to read about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And you're going to have to wrestle with what does that mean, what does that teach us, and such is our present task at hand. So as we look to the Holy Spirit for guidance and for enlightening and for empowerment, uh, let's pray once again. Dear Lord, I ask the same spirit that was with the followers of Christ when they witnessed Jesus feeding the multitude, pray that that same self, self-same spirit will be with us as we have read the word, and now we'll be proclaiming and listening to the word, may the same spirit work within our hearts powerfully to remind us of the reality of the living Jesus who is ever near us and with us, and it is in his name we pray, amen. So as some of you are familiar, uh, we're going through a sermon series at Christ, Christ Press in all three locations called Encounters with Christ. And today's encounter is um, the crowds encountering Jesus. In fact, to be more precise, it is hungry crowds. And to be more precise yet, it is the hungry Jewish crowds who are hungry for more than just one thing. I would like to share three points with you this morning, but the final point will loop. Back into the first one, thereby sort of creating a sort of a circle of life with Christ as both the beginning and the end. Before we get to that, I'd like to talk a little bit about crowds. I don't know whether you like crowds of people or not, but crowds have different interpretations in different situations and contexts. So the Bible has something to say about the crowds that I think is almost incidentally does so, and I find that absolutely hilarious. And there's another story that I'll share with you. But let's look, uh, if you have your Bibles, if you can just think, uh, Acts 19, verse 32. This is really, really uh, an ironic kind of a statement about crowds. So Acts 19 is a story of Paul getting in loads of trouble in the city of Ephesus. Paul goes to the city of Ephesus and begins to proclaim the gospel there. And one of the leaders, uh, civic leaders and uh, uh, economic leaders of the town, the city was A man named Demetrius, he was a silversmith, and he was perhaps in charge of the guild, and he got really upset that this Jewish guy was becoming the sort of adjutant in the community. So he said, you know, great is the Artemis of the the Ephesians, and they're about to arrest Paul. And this is what it says in verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another, and this is the punchline for me. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. I mean, this is, to me, absolutely. When I first read that, and every time I reread it, it just cracks me up. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. You can relate to that. You know, if somebody says, I have to buy this. I ask why. Like, well, you just have to do it. Like, what is Alexa? I still, I mean, I got um, Google something and Amazon something as gift. They're sitting in their unopened boxes. I don't know how to use them. I, I don't, I'm afraid of calling Alexa, and she'll say something kind of totally crazy and creepy, but... I don't know. Maybe I'm not part of the crowd, I, but there it is, right? So the crowds, sometimes we don't even know why we do certain things. Acts 19 says so. Most of the people didn't even know why, why, why they were there. There was another philosopher who thought kind of similarly. He was a 19th century philosopher whose uh, uh, critique on civic religion, namely European Christianity of the 19th century, is so spot on. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche. He was not a Christian. Father was a Christian. Grandfather was a uh, Christian. They're both pastors, in fact. And so he has a very interesting take on Christianity. And he says uh, this about herd mentality, groupthink. He says, the European herd, this is, uh, this is what he says in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, the delight in the herd, the crowd, is more ancient than delight in the eye. And as long as the good conscience is identified with the herd or crowd, only the bad conscience says I. Individuality is stifled and crushed by groupthink. Elsewhere he writes, today when the herd animal in Europe is the only one who attains and distributes honors, When equality of rights all too easily can get turned around into equality of wrongs, what I mean is into a common war against everything rare and strange, privilege and the higher person, the higher soul, the higher duty, the higher responsibility, and the creative fullness of power and mastery. Nietzsche had no time for the crowds. He felt they were just group thinking people. They don't really know how to think independently, and this is not good we will actually compare and contrast it with the attitude that Jesus had toward the crowds. And so the three points that I'd like to share with you today are as follows. Compassion, cooperation, and confusion. And the third point, confusion, will loop us back to compassion of Christ. So let's have a look then. First point is compassion, but more specifically is divine compassion. Let me ask you, friends, what do you think would be the first reaction When God sees you, if God were to look at you, what do you think would be the first thought that would emerge in God's being? Would that be apathy? Would that be anger? Would that be contempt? Would that be desire for justice? As you're paying attention to the hymns you're singing, right, whether it is John Newton hymn or Charles Wesley hymn, You can experience, I think, vicariously the dilemma, the crushing burden of the law, and the humanity's impossibility to keep it, therefore finding oneself in a state of despair or desolation. So maybe it is justifiable at one level. You might think, oh, God, look at me scornfully or judgmentally. But I like the phrase that has been part of the kind of long-standing Christian tradition, especially in the Latin tradition, when we think about God, We think of God as the misericordia Day, the mercy of God. God looks at us mercifully. God could judge us. God would look at us, you know, from a legalistic standpoint and find us wanting, but God doesn't do that. God looks at us mercifully. Mercy on me, mercy toward me. Thus the first point, divine compassion. So this chapter is quite a chapter, Mark chapter 6. As I said, this story is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we want to focus on Mark chapter 6. Here, the beginning of the chapter talks about Jesus as a prophet without honor in his hometown. Because people knew Jesus' brothers' names. And he had four brothers at least, according to this gospel. He had at least two sisters. So he was the oldest, I think, of the seven, right? I mean, so... Eldest of the seven, uh, six siblings. And we also know that he kind of gets scorned and rejected by the community. And then he sends out the 12 apostles to do the work of God. To really announce that the kingdom of God is near them. And to start doing the kingdom work. And so they are dispatched and sent abroad. And then what follows is a very interesting story that we often forget to connect with the story that we are looking at today. And that is John the Baptist's execution, which shows up in verses 14 through 29. It is a lengthy kind of interlude, and the story is really both bizarre as well as morbid. It's a story of uh, John the Baptist, who, as you may recall, was the leader. He was the man among the prophets who had come before Jesus and he had been arrested, and he had been incarcerated, and now he meets this strange fate of execution, beheading. And, so that, and then Jesus hears about this, and Jesus said about John the Baptist, as you may recall, he says, you know what, of you know, men born of, of women, there has been no one greater than this person. So think about the sort of popularity and prominence of John the Baptist because we want to think, of, we want to get into the psyche of the crowds. See, you, many of us had been, let's say we were, you know, first century Jews, we're looking for the Messiah. We hear this, you know, funny man wearing funny clothes, eating funny foods, proclaiming the message, the advent of the kingdom of God, namely John the Baptist. Flocks of people are crowding to hear him. He's now dead. Right. He's dead. So there's a sense of pandemonium, there's a sense of panic, there's a sense of like, what do we do now? And this is the context within which we pick up our story. Are you with me? So this is where we are, all right? So then we want to see the story and the apostles, and they come back. They gather around Jesus in verse 30, and then they're super pumped and excited and yet tired and exhausted, right? Jesus saw that they needed a retreat. So in verse 31, so many people are coming and going, so they had no chance to eat. So what does Jesus suggest? Understandably, he says, "Hey, let's go and have a retreat among ourselves. You deserve one. You've been you've been out and you've been working really late, and you are you've done some amazing things, but you're physically exhausted. Spiritually, you are you know have been giving and giving and giving. So you need to be replenished. Understandable desire on the part of our Lord." Look at verse 33, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. I mean, (laughs) this is to me also hilarious. I mean, this is also talking about this sort of popular crowd's sense of commotion, right? Their confusion. They're like, okay, our one leader is dead. So what do we do now? Here's Jesus. He's starting to do some really interesting things. Let's go hear what he has to say. And so they get ahead of Jesus. What Jesus and his friends wanted was rest and retreat. But they don't get to have that, right? So look at verse 34. Look at Jesus' reaction. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had what? Compassion on them. He had compassion on them and then began teaching them. Why? Because they looked like they were sheep without a shepherd. He saw them rightly in many ways that they were sheep without a shepherd. Now, the great shepherd of their kind of ministry or their group, namely John the Baptist, is dead. And he looks at them, and rather than being agitated by them, rather than demanding his own rights of you know, rest and retreat, he has compassion on them and he begins to teach them. Teaching them about the kingdom. But in the end, it'll all converge or climax in the person who work of the Messiah, namely himself. He had compassion on them. Misericordia Day in Latin means mercy of God. Misereri" in Latin means to have pity, and core means heart. Pitting us from the heart, pitting us from the heart of God. But this Misericordia Day is not some cheap emotion, it is emotion in action. God acts, God acts in Jesus Christ. One of the, you know, I used to be, when I was in college, I, for, for about, I mean, for almost four years, I was a DJ of our college radio station. And I did a lot of parties, and so I relate a lot with songs, and, and, and so, and every time I teach, whether at school or at church, I like to bring in a song to illustrate the point. The song of the day, today is a song by Rock City. They had a song, number one hit with uh, uh, Adam Levine uh, called Locked Away, which is about two, three years ago. How many of you know that song, Locked Away? Nobody knows it? Okay. <laughs> all right, right. Lisa knows. All right, good, good. All right, Thank you. All right, so you should listen to that song, actually. It's like it was number one hit, and it was a great song. I think Adam Levine is going to be singing at Super Bowl uh, halftime show too. But it begins by saying like this. If I get locked away and we lost it all today, tell me honestly, would you still love me the same? If I showed, showed you my flaws and if I couldn't be strong, tell me honestly, would you still love me the same? Now tell me, would you really ride for me? Baby, tell me, would you die for me? Would you spend your whole life with me? Would you be there to always hold me down? I was driving home from Atlanta one day. I listened to this song for the first time. On a radio, and I was blown away. So I had to, you know, pull over and looked up on the, you know, YouTube video. I watched the YouTube video probably like 10, 15 times. I'm sort of like that. And then, and then I began kind of on the side like weeping. Weeping because of the, both the beauty of this song, but also the haunting kind of question. Like, would you die for me? If I got locked away and lost it all, would you still love me? If I, you know, if you see all of my flaws, would you still be there loving me? This seemed like an impossible demand upon humans, upon humans. And then the reason why I was weeping was because the only person about whom I could sing, sing this most emphatically and, and enthusiastically is Jesus, who has compassion for me. He was locked away from me, right? He was executed for me. He, knowing all of my flaws, did not say, you get away from here. He had compassion on me, and he acted for me and on my behalf, on our behalf, Here we have a picture of Jesus, tired as he was, and his plans are now temporarily redirected, if not thwarted. And yet here, he demonstrates that compassion embodies that misericordia day. We're going to come back to Jesus, so let's move to the second point, which is cooperation. So compassion and cooperation, more specifically, apostolic cooperation, apostles cooperating here. Notice here in verses 36 and 37. We see a brief yet pivotal interaction between Jesus and the apostles. Um, in verse thirty-five, in fact, it says, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to Jesus. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already late. Send the people away so that they can go out to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. What is that music festival, Bonnaroo? Right. Think of think Bonnaroo right now. Right? It's kind of, but I know a lot of food trucks come and they but think of like a remote place where you cannot like find food easily and there are 5,000 people, 5,000 men, that means conservatively speaking, there are probably another 5,000 women and probably 5,000 or more children. So that's a pretty big throng of people, right? And you're in a remote place and they're recognizing an immediate existential conundrum. We got a food shortage problem. And they say, well, look, we don't, want to, we don't want to find ourselves in an economic greater debt than we already are. We don't know whether Jesus had a debt-running ministry. I doubt it. But, you know, nonetheless, they're going to incur some debt if they don't solve this immediate problem, right? You got this problem of being away from food kind of supplies, Right. Groceries or restaurants or whatever they are, right, in the first century context. And they're far away from all of it. So Jesus is now confronted as were the disciples. What do we do? Because we got these people are hanging on every word you're delivering. But soon they're going to be actually turning on you, turning against you. Because if there's no food, they're going to go very quickly from hungry to hangry. And that's not a good scene, right? I mean, this, that's, they know. They know it's going to be an issue. So, but look at verse 37, right? Jesus says, You give them something to eat. So the grammatical construction of the sentence is very emphatic, meaning Jesus is saying almost like you give them something to eat, right? It's not you give them something to eat. No, it's like you give them something to eat. So he's throwing down the gauntlet and challenging the apostles saying, you know what? My work is actually going to be carried out, in fact, by you. When I die and, and resurrected and ascended in heaven, the agents that I've got are you guys. And you all need to do this work. So he's now, and notice the irony too, right? They had just come back from their first mission trip. And they're super excited. They're super pumped because they were able to see and witness God at work. And yet confronted with this food shortage problem, they fall back onto their basic and based resources saying, unbelief, we cannot solve this problem. And in many ways, I don't know about you, but I can really relate with the apostles. Can't you? I mean, you got 5,000 people in front of you. we got no restaurants around here, no food trucks. We have this big festival of word, and then they're all hanging. They're super excited, so much so that they're not even aware that they're hungry or should be hungry. But apostles, being the astute managers that they were, noticed that we could have a potential disaster looming on the horizon. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And then look at their response. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Well, that could be a problem. We're not that well endowed. No restaurants nearby. So even if we had our money, we couldn't buy it. So we should just send them away. That seems like a sensible solution. Now, it is interesting. The story has been really interpreted in various ways, as you can imagine. Because I, I, I realize that maybe some of us are sitting here thinking, you know what, Paul? I don't believe this story. How can Jesus multiply five loaves of you know, bread and two fish? And so I don't believe it. It can't be true. I'm out. I want to tell you, friends, that it doesn't have to be either or a proposition. It really doesn't have to be. Because the punchline is not necessarily believing in the miracles, though I do believe in, and I hope you do too. But the punchline is believing in the trustworthiness of Jesus as the person who is at the center of this story, who through the miracle, because the greater miracle yet, it seems to me is, at least for me, is believing, believing the story, and believing in the, in the personal work of Jesus Christ. So I realize that there is a challenge for some people who have said, okay, if I don't believe this story, can I still be a Christian? Rather than answering it that way, I want to continually invite you to the story of Jesus. I think for me, the the, the beauty of Christianity is a continual work of the Holy Spirit drawing us nearer to God. As I'll share later on, I have doubts, I have questions, I am confused. And yet I'm not walking away and say I'm not a Christian anymore. Because the nature of the Christian journey is that God is ever near us, beckoning us to himself. Calling us to cooperate even. Even in our moments of questions and doubts. And that to me is the beauty of it all. God doesn't say you got to clean up your act completely, be impeccable, and then and only then can you follow me. God says, you know what? I've come to call the lost. I've come to call those who are hungry and lost, and that's who you are. You give them something to eat. He could have done it himself, but he wants cooperation from the, from the, the disciples. St. Teresa of Avila, a 16th century Spanish Christian, said, Christ has no body but yours. No hands. Right. Good. Okay. Can you still hear me? No feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on the world. Thank you, lamp right here. (laughs) Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. Yours are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Think about that. Christ is calling for this apostolic cooperation. Yes, in this moment of potentially trifecta of bad things, no food, people angry, managerial kind of disaster. In that, Christ calmly and serenely and controllingly says, you give them something to eat. And then they figure out, okay, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. And he begins to distribute. But guess who are the ones who are carrying the food to the people? The apostles, right? So one of the ancient preachers named John Chrysostom says this. The reason why Jesus has it like that is that he wants to demonstrate to the apostles that they are the one. they were the ones who carry that food. You see, think about it like this. The, the crowd, 5,000 men and 5,000 women and plus children, they were, they were pretty way back there in the back row, right? I mean, it's pretty dark here in the back row. If you're sitting in the back row, you can barely see me nor hear me. And so you may not have been able to really witness in a palpable fashion the beauty and the sublimity of this miracle, right? At the same time, it's a very kind of everyday nature. You get more food and everybody ate to their full. I mean, imagine a sumptuous feast like that. All right, you might say it's no feast, got only got bread and fish, all right. But at least you got your tummy filled, right? And this is, this is truly a miraculous thing because surely there were stories like that in Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. But I think the people were really shocked, Right? shocked by what they had seen. Abundance of food left over as well as the amount of good food available. I mean, that is miraculous. But also what is also miraculous is that Jesus was not bound by physical limitations and the superabundance of his compassion we see. Let's actually turn to our third point, which is a confusion, popular confusion. I often wondered, if I lived in the first century, you know, Jewish context, would I have understood the message of Jesus? I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that I became a Christian in the 20th century rather in the first century. Having the benefits of the Bibles and the study Bibles and all of these, there are already structures, credibility structure, that would likely push me toward believing that not. I have a lot of sympathy. Thank you, the source of light. All right. I have a lot of sympathy for the crowds, do you not? I don't know. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in that situation. If you're in the first century Jewish person listening to this upstart preacher who has no real good pedigree, whose family was not that great, right? So didn't go to the right school, didn't come from the right family. And he had lots of, I don't know, we didn't know much about him. All we knew was that he wasn't that great, ordinarily humanly speaking, and he starts ministering. Are you likely to follow him or not? So talk about the confusion. Did they really get the significance of Jesus' ministry? Think of it like this. And I wanna, one of my favorite movies of all time is Monty Python's movie, Life of Brian. Right? If you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's actually, to me, every time I watch it, I get a better sense of, ah, that must have been what it was like to be in the crowds with Jesus. So there's one scene that is, like my son and I love this particular scene. He's Jesus is preaching the, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And in the back, way back, they're saying, what did he say? And then one says, I think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. And then they're like, oh, why would he say blessed are the cheesemakers? And they're going on back and forth about why Jesus might have a you know, preference for dairy you know, workers and so on and so forth. And it really is a hilarious scene. But at the same time, that to me epitomizes the kind of confusion that must have been when Jesus taught. As a teacher, I get really encouraged because even the most infallible teacher got some people kind of confused. They didn't all get it. Then it encouraged me, like, okay, I'm a mere mortal and students don't get it. That's okay, you know. But look, there is confusion, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Some thought that he meant to say blessed are the cheesemakers. There was massive confusion as to who Jesus was to be. Really, For real. So much so that in John chapter 6, this parallel story of this story, in John chapter 6, he performs the same miracle, and what John provides is another parenthetical commentary on the reaction of the people. Do you know what it says in John 6? They were so excited because he is now providing them free lunch. They are saying, let's make you king. Listen, friends, one of our biggest existential problems, globally speaking, is what? Economic problems, food shortage, right? And here is Jesus who could solve their problem. Some people are saying, hey, let's you and I go into this catering business. We go to all these countryside picnics and we provide them free food. That will be great business. Jesus doesn't cave into that pressure. In fact, the Gospel of John says that they wanted to make him king by force. And Jesus withdrew and ran away from them. Then people are beginning to be confused and others are starting to get it. There's a parallel kind of structure here. Some are more confounded and others were clarified in their vision of Jesus. Fyodor Dostoevsky in his book Brothers Karamazov in the story of Grand Inquisitor has this Grand Inquisitor condemning and damning Jesus for refusing to turn what? Stones into Bread. In essence, what you should have done is to keep turning stones into bread and to create the best Jewish catering service for the first century ever. We'll give you five loaves and two fish and you will continue to turn that into a sumptuous country picnic for 5,000 people every time they show up. And Jesus does not do it. Then we are bound to ask the nature of his kingdom and his ministry, what was he about? Was he really about providing food ad infinitum? Or was that pointers to something beyond? In fact, this... You know, this is really interesting because when Jesus has everyone gathered, and it says in verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heavens, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. What does that sound like? It sounds like the Lord's Supper. The le- so you see, what, what I think the gospel writers are doing is this. They're deeply aware of this existential problem, and that is the absence of Jesus. The absence of miraculous, miracle worker Jesus. They are only able to hear about this story, right? And okay, we're now in 2019 and you say, oh yeah, that's a problem. Well, wait a minute. In 79 AD or 119 AD, you still have the same problem. The absence of Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. So you're having to rely on the gospel stories that are being written. And those stories are now going to form the core of your faith. So when the gospel writer writes it as he, broke, he gave thanks and broke the bread and gave it to them, that's very much reminiscent of what you're about to do in the Lord's Supper. So what the gospel writer is trying to communicate is this. Even though you don't have Jesus performing miracles like that, that you read about and hear about, what you do have is Jesus giving you the Eucharist. Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit inflaming your heart and soul to desire Christ. Because our life, to go through the veil of our life existence, to be honest with you, is to go through confusion. Right? The disciples, some of them are confused. But if our journey with God and toward the city of God was glorying only with gold and not with tears of confusion and sadness, my friends, then far more people would want to be followers of Christ. If by following Christ means power and pomp and health and you know, wealth and, and prosperity... Then far more people say, I want that religion. But Jesus said, that's not why I'm here. You know, let me try to bring it up to our close. There's truly confusing aspects of my life journey here and your life journey as well. And it is okay to be confused. But let's go to the source of our compassion, right? This past week alone, I sat down with and hugged people who are in life transition, meaning losing members of family to death. Career transition from having job to none at all. To marriage transition from being married to not. Just this past week for me. One of my friends asked me, why is God doing this? Why is God doing this that I am actually having to suffer from double whammy here, lost my job, and now my marriage is about to end? He's not some kind of flip, kind of, a you know, no, he's taking his Christian faith very, very seriously. He's, uh, he was one of the leaders of his church. And he's now really wrestling with this. Lord, I'm confused. As one of my students from Burma, a theology student, asked me recently, why is God allowing this to happen to the Rohingyas? There's a group that are being the refugees that are being persecuted within Burma, having to go back to Bangladesh. And there's a massive humanitarian crisis. So macrocosmically as well as microcosmically. Globally as well as individually, many of us are confused. But that's not the end of the gospel story. Though confused we may be, we are also called by the Lord to seek our solution in Christ and Christ alone. So back to compassion. So I don't know where you are exactly in your life journey. I've just told you that I have a lot of questions. I am sometimes confused about the state of my own affair as well as the world's affairs. And yet I am brought back to the feet of the cross or to the table. And as we are about to receive the Lord's Supper, I want us to think about that. I want us to think about what is the nature of this enterprise that we're about to do. A little bit of bread, a little bit of wine or grape juice. But through this sacrament, what God is desiring of us to be is to be transformed into that likeness of Christ. To see the world as Christ sees it. In need of compassion. In need of cooperation. Amidst so much confusion so that through all of our endeavors, God will be magnified, and we will find some semblance of meaning and joy in our earthly journey toward the city of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your continuing work of the gospel. We thank you that you have not left us abandoned to ourselves, that we are able to experience your presence and power and purposes. And as we have just heard the word preached Lord, as we are about to receive the word that we can eat and drink and be transformed into your likeness, may you accomplish that work as we seek you above all. Thank you for meeting us amidst our confusion. Equip us toward cooperation with you as we know that in you there is that infinite compassion because of which we can come to you. In your name we pray. Amen.